In September 2003, a certain Mr. Yates from New York went to the emergency department of his local hospital, complaining that he'd been bitten by a pit bull. When doctors examined him, they realized his injury was more serious than a dog bite, and so they alerted the police. When the police arrived at the apartment, they bored a spy hole through the front door, and through it they saw pacing up and down a 140 kilogram tiger that Mr. Yates had been keeping as a pet. They managed to shoot the tiger with a tranquilizer dart and enter the apartment. And it was then that they discovered the crocodile. Mr. Yates was arrested on charges of reckless endangerment and keeping dangerous animals in his home. In Revelation chapter two, the Lord Jesus writes to the church at Thyatira in modern-day Turkey, and he rebukes the church for keeping in its home a dangerous false teacher. Let's have a look. Revelation chapter two. Verses eighteen to twenty-nine, and Alf Turner is going to read the passage for us. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write: These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless. I have this against you: you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of their ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. There is much for us to see in these verses, but let's begin by looking at what was taking place in the church at Thyatira. And on the one hand, the church had much to be commended for. Verse nineteen: I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. In other words, the Christians at Thyatira exhibited the three great Christian virtues: faith, hope, and love. Love and faith are mentioned directly, and as John Stott points out, what is perseverance and service but the practical outworking of hope? 
Not only do they have these virtues, but they are growing in them too. You are now doing more than you did at first. But in verse 20, there is one of those awful turning points as the Lord Jesus, whose blazing eyes see everything, moves from commendation to complaint. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Last time we saw that there was a group of teachers and preachers at the church in Pergamum who were enticing their fellow Christians to compromise with the world through idolatry and immorality, and something very similar was taking place in the church in Thyatira. There was a woman in the congregation whom Jesus calls Jezebel, That wasn't her actual name. The reference is to the infamous Queen Jezebel, the wife of King Ahaz of Israel, who tried to get the nation of Israel to worship both Yahweh and Baal. Jesus calls this lady in Thyatira Jezebel because she is doing the same thing, trying to entice God's people into worshipping God and the world. So this lady was teaching the same thing as the false teachers in Pergamum, but she was doing so with a pseudo-spiritual twist. She claimed to be a prophetess, but it is clear from the way in which Jesus refers to her, calls herself a prophetess, that she was no prophet at all. She would have believed, though, that she had a direct hotline to God, She would have said things like, thus saith the Lord, or I have a message from God for you, or God says, which was not in fact a word from God at all. Not only that, but we are also told in verse 24 that she was advocating some sort of deep teaching. She would have called this God's deep secrets, but Jesus has another term for it, which we'll come to in a moment. Remember that last time we saw that the Nicolaitans at Pergamum and Ephesus were probably early Gnostics, which wasn't an organized group, but more a collection of ideas within the early church. Two of the main beliefs of the Gnostics were these. Firstly, they believed that the flesh, our earthly bodies, are evil, but that our spirits are pure. And secondly, Gnostics believed that there were two types of Christians, the Sarkikoi, the worldly Christians, and the Pneumatikoi, the truly spiritual Christians. And you were only a truly spiritual Christian if you had special knowledge, gnosis, that was not available to ordinary Christians, this so-called deep teaching. This lady may have quoted Deuteronomy chapter 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. She may even have gone as far as to quote the Apostle Paul himself, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. She would have called this special knowledge the deep secrets of God, But Jesus says that it is actually Satan's so-called 
deep secrets. So this is very serious stuff. And we know that it's serious because Jesus has some extremely harsh things to say about this lady. As with all of us, Jesus begins by being patient. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. There was probably someone in the church who did what Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But this lady was unwilling to listen. And so Jesus continues in verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The adultery here is probably the spiritual adultery of going after other gods and the sexual immorality that went along with that. But the suffering and the death are quite literal. Every now and again I hear people say something along the lines of, I'm so glad we don't have that angry, judgmental God of the Old Testament. I'm so glad that we have the Lord Jesus, who is much more loving. Here we see that it is the same God. This is Jesus writing to church people and threatening to strike them dead. And we know from Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 15, and from some in the city of Corinth who were treating communion lightly and were getting sick and dying, 1 Corinthians 11, that this is not an idle threat. Now, what does all of this mean for us today, who are separated from these events by 2,000 years and 8,000 kilometers? Well, there is so much to say about this passage. It's not been easy for me to prepare. But let me focus on three main things from these verses, from the context of the seven letters, and then the wider context of the rest of Scripture, too. I think it's important to recognize, firstly, the reality of the counterfeit, that there is such a thing as false prophecy and false teaching. This may appear to be an obvious point, but unfortunately, the new tolerance of our world seems to have entered the Christian church. The old concept of tolerance was, in fact, a very good thing. I disapprove of what you say but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I may disagree with you, but it's vitally important that we both have the right to disagree. However, the new concept of tolerance is that actually there is nothing of which we can or should disapprove. Every opinion is just as valid as every other one. We should tolerate everything except intolerance which is actually then self-defeating. You can't say all opinions are equally valid except the opinion that not all opinions are equally valid. It just doesn't work. But this idea of tolerance has entered the Christian church so that you can't say a particular teacher or teaching is wrong. Rather, you just have to love and honor everybody. 
Notice then that in this letter, the Lord Jesus particularly rebukes his church for their tolerance. You tolerate that woman. She is guilty of false prophecy and false teaching, but you are guilty of tolerating her. Tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is. Understanding is. Kindness is. Graciousness is. Mercy is. Humility is but not tolerance. There is such a thing as false teaching and false prophecy, and pointing that out is not unloving. Now hold that thought. We'll need to balance it with another thought in a moment. Perhaps under this main heading of the reality of the counterfeit, it would be useful to make a subheading, false teachers and false teaching. I think that one can make a distinction between those two. So, for example, in Acts chapter 18, we read about a young man called Apollos who is highly educated and has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures and who preaches up a storm in the city of Ephesus, but who only knows about the baptism of John. And so we read how a godly couple, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, take him on one side and explain to him the gospel more fully. Up until that point, we could say that Apollos was a false teacher, but only in the sense that he was guilty of false teaching rather than that he was a genuine false teacher, if that makes sense. And let me point out that I too am guilty of that. From time to time, I will interpret a Bible passage incorrectly. I will tell you that the Greek word means this and therefore has this implication when it clearly does not. One writer suggests that most pastors only get it right about 80% of the time. That's why, as I pointed out last time, we need to hold one another accountable. But there is a second group of false teachers of which this lady was a part. Those who are not open to correction. And on the extreme end of that group, you have false teachers who know full well that they are wrong and are out to deliberately deceive God's people for their own benefit. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 about those who peddle the word of God for profit. And as a good shepherd, in order to protect his sheep, Paul in his letters goes so far as to name six men whose teaching was destructive to the church. In the 1980s, there was a German-born American televangelist called Peter Popoff, who had an incredible prophetic and healing ministry. He would stand at the front of the church and say, God is telling me that the woman in row C, seat number five, you, your name is Shirley, you live in 5 Elm Street and you have back pain. God wants to heal you right now. It was most impressive, too impressive. A group of mythbusters discovered that as people came into the auditorium, they were given prayer cards on which they would write their names and addresses and prayer needs. And then Mrs. Popoff was taking these and noting where people sat and then feeding this information to her husband via a radio transmitter to a receiver in his ear. Popoff was making $4 million a year on the preaching circuit before he was found out. He filed for bankruptcy in 1987, but he's still around, if you can believe it. You can buy a bottle of his miracle water over the internet today. 
I don't relate that story to suggest in any way that there is no such thing as the gift of healing and no such things as words of knowledge from God. There are. I'm simply echoing the warning from the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 24. False prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So given, firstly, the reality of the counterfeit, let's look, secondly, at our responsibilities in regard to teaching and prophecy. And I believe we have two main responsibilities. Our first responsibility is love. Do you remember that the church at Ephesus was commended for its orthodoxy, but criticized for its lack of love. Here the church at Thyatira is commended for their love, but criticized for their tolerance of false teaching. Somehow we have to get the balance right. Pastor John Stott points out that some Christians are so resolved to make love paramount that they forget the sacredness of revealed truth. Let us drown out our doctrinal differences in the ocean of brotherly love. Others are equally mistaken in their pursuit of truth at the expense of love. So dogged is their zeal for God's word that they become harsh, bitter and unloving. Love becomes sentimental if it is not strengthened by truth. And truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. I'm not sure that our job as Christians is to go around identifying all the Jezebels and Jezebos in the Christian church or to go around calling people heretics. The famous German atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, whom I don't often quote, once pointed out that he who fights too long against dragons becomes a dragon himself. No, our job, as we saw earlier, is to care enough about our brothers and sisters to gently and lovingly correct those who've gone off track, to learn to speak the truth in love and be imitators of the Lord Jesus who came from the Father, full of grace, love and truth. John 1. We can rest assured, as we see in this passage, that the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, is perfectly able to fight for his church and remove false teachers and teaching with his feet of burnished bronze. So there's the responsibility of love. Secondly, there is the responsibility to test. Remember, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus because you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And there are several other places in the New Testament when, where we are urged to test. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul gives us the balance. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. We don't have time to explore these in all the detail I would like, but let me mention five tests. Number one, what does this teaching say about the person of Jesus? John writes in 1 John chapter 4, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Any teacher that denies that Jesus is God come in the flesh is a false teacher. Any teaching that denies the divine human nature of Christ and his unique saving work is a false teaching. Number two, we must ask, what does this teaching say about the priority of Jesus? The priority of who he is and what he has done for us. That's the problem with the cults. They advocate what has been termed a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus the Book of Mormon. Jesus plus science and health. Jesus plus the New World Translation. But this is the problem, too, with some who promote deeper teaching or deeper experiences. These things are not necessarily wrong or evil, but they can divert us from the person of Jesus and his finished work for us. Let me use one example of a teaching that I haven't personally encountered and that I'm not aware of as being taught in the South African church today. So hopefully I'll avoid getting into trouble. But Pastor Don Carson tells the story of how he once was at a conference for missionaries as their speaker. And in one of his talks, he made some disparaging remarks about Christian reimagining techniques. This is the idea that you can imagine yourself entering the world for the very first time. And as your mother is giving birth to you, you imagine that it is Jesus who is there to catch you and wipe you down and wrap you in a blanket and cuddle you. From the very first, he has loved you. Well, the next day, one of the missionary couples invited Don to lunch, and after the meal, the husband said to him, Why were you so rude about rebirthing techniques? Let me tell you my story. I was abused as a child, and for years I couldn't receive love or give love to others. And then I went to a class by a particular Christian man who took me through a session where I imagined myself being born and having Jesus there to love me. And it changed my life. For the first time, I was able to experience God's love and share that love with others. And Don Carson said to him, My dear brother, if you have genuinely learned something about the love of Christ through that experience, and if you've become a more loving person because of that, who am I to judge? But I want to suggest to you that you have settled for second best. And this missionary angrily said, what do you mean? Don Carson replied, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that we would know the height and depth and breadth of God's love. He wants us to know and experience his love. But where is the love of God found? 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And I suggest to you that you could have had the same healing effect if someone had sat down with you and carefully gone through Romans chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 2 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that describe the love of God for us displayed on the cross and what it means in our lives. The problem is that now you associate your healing not with the cross of Christ, which is where God's word tells us it is found, but instead with something that comes from your own imagination. 
And then you are just a step away from leaving an objective historical time and space event and going down the path of all sorts of imaginations and speculations. You see, Satan is not going to come to us and say, here's a whole lot of heresy, believe this. But he will break down the association between the blessings of the Christian life and the cross of Christ. He breaks down the link between the blessings of the Christian life and self-denial, taking up our cross. He breaks down the relationship between the power of the Spirit and the cross, which alone provides the Spirit. He comes to us with deep teaching, which turns out to be Satan's deep secrets because they divert us from the priority of Jesus and his finished work for us. Look, I think I've been as nice as possible so far, but I'm now going to be as harsh as my reserved British nature will allow me. It's not my spirituality that makes me so nice. It's having British blood. But I look around at some of the things I see on so-called Christian television and I shudder. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaks about people who teach false doctrines, devote themselves to myths, who have turned to meaningless talk, but who do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. The third test for teaching and prophecy is the character of the man or woman who is teaching. This isn't foolproof, because in some cases we will only see this on the day of judgment when everything is tested and shown for what it is. But here clearly we have a lady who, in the words of Jude chapter 1, is perverting the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And it's possible to look at the Lord Jesus and his humility and poverty and willingness to suffer and die and hold that up against the character of those who claim to speak for him. And where there is a disparity, it should raise questions in our minds. The fourth test for teaching and prophecy is to look at the fruit. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. But we must be cautious. Some people suggest that the fruit of a person's ministry or teaching is how popular it is, or how many people are blessed by it, or even in the fact that the teaching seems to work. But read Jesus' very next words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The fruit of a genuine word from God is seen in long-term spiritual growth. Some things look good for a time, like the seed in the parable of the sower, which fell on rocky ground and immediately sprang up, but about which Jesus says refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
No, we read about long-term fruit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Things that characterize the life of a man or woman who is sowing to the Spirit, who is being led by the Spirit. And we read too in that chapter about the very different and opposite things that characterize the life of a man or a woman who is sowing to their sinful human nature. We read about fruit in John chapter 15, where Jesus describes himself as being the vine and us being the branches, and that if we remain in him by remaining in his love, by obeying his commands, then we will bear fruit. True words from God result in men and women who look more and more like the Lord Jesus. The fifth test for words from God are whether or not they align with what God has already said. <laughs> Does this teaching match what I find in Scripture? Notice in verse 25 that in contrast to this lady's teaching and her so-called deep secrets, Jesus says, only hold on to what you have until I come. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we are urged to hold fast to the word of life, Philippians 2, and not to go beyond what is written, 1 Corinthians 4. The Bible is the plumb line against which we measure all other teaching and preaching and prophecy, because every word between its covers has been breathed out by God. The Apostle Peter describes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he goes as far as to say this. He says, we ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with Jesus on the sacred mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see what Peter is saying here? Voices from heaven do not legitimize the scriptures. The scriptures legitimize voices from heaven. Tim Keller uses this illustration in one of his sermons. He says, imagine your pastor is busy preaching and suddenly an angel appears from heaven and your pastor falls over in a dead faint. And so the angel picks up where he left off. He doesn't need a microphone. He has a big, booming voice, and he begins, Thus says the Lord of hosts. You would probably be terrified. But at the same time, there'd be a part of you that would be exhilarated because you'd be thinking, At last! Now I know it's true. But according to Scripture, something else needs to happen at that point. While the angel is speaking, somebody in the congregation, maybe a little old lady at the back, has to put up her hand and say, Excuse me, Mr. Angel, but do you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? That has to happen. And if the angel says, no, then that little old lady, helped by the rest of you, have to pick the angel up and throw him out of the church. I'm not making this up. Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Any genuine word from God through a brother or sister would need to align with what I've been reading and praying through in my daily times with God because it's the same person. So the Bible is our plumb line 
But it's not just about whether a person quotes the Bible or not that makes their teaching biblical. All Christian teachers quote the Bible. If that were the only requirement, there wouldn't be any such thing as false teaching. Now, in the words of Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, Christian teachers are to correctly handle the word of truth. King James Version uses an old English phrase, correctly divide the word of truth. But as one pastor points out, false teaching generally does divide or add to or subtract from or multiply the word of truth. It's possible to come up with a human theory and then find various Bible verses to support that theory. It's possible to take one Bible verse and build an entire theory around that one verse. It's possible to focus on one part of Scripture and ignore the other parts. And it's possible to ignore the fact that we sometimes have to affirm two truths that seem contradictory, like the love of God and the wrath of God, or the sovereignty of God and the freedom of human beings, or the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus. It's possible for teachers to emphasize one part of that and ignore the other. There's so much more that we could say here, but I would urge you to look for teachers who take a passage of Scripture and carefully explain what the text meant and what it means and how it fits into the bigger story of God's plan to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of his Son through the death of Jesus on our behalf. Our time is gone, but as we close, look at the promise that Jesus gives to those who overcome in verses 28 and 29. You'll need to read the verses again for yourself. The battle for truth is a hard one. It's just as hard as standing up under the outward threat of persecution but Jesus says that to those who overcome, those who seek to know his will and who do his will to the end, not just understand his word, but obey it, he will give the right to rule with him. We're not 100% sure exactly what we will be doing in heaven, but we do know that as co-heirs with Christ, we will reign with him. And Jesus also promises to give us the morning star. This is a very beautiful picture because in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star. To those who overcome and obey, Jesus not only promises that we shall reign with him, but that he will give us his very self. May God bless you.